Alright everyone, welcome to another episode of the Rope A Dope Podcast. I am your host, Gene Morgan, and today we're going to have on a great guest, Ireland's own John Duddy will be on the podcast. Very excited to have him on, really looking forward to having him on. But first, before we get to all that, there was a really, something I want to talk about. Uh, There was a great article on ESPN about where has Andy Ruiz gone, former heavyweight champion of the world. It's been one year since he won the heavyweight championship by a shocking knockout victory over Anthony Joshua. And in that year, he has both lost the heavyweight championship, and we haven't seen him fight since, which is fine. Two fights. I think he had three fights in 2019. So maybe four. So, like, yeah, take some time off, you know, recuperate, especially after that loss against Anthony Joshua in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but we, I want to see where he's at now. Uh, I want to see him in the ring again. And the article made it seem like he was very undisciplined and nobody knows where he's at. Uh, personally, I think that they want to try to get him and Chris Ariola in the ring again. That's someone who, um, Chris Ariola, Chris Ariola, when he was on the podcast, that was a fight that he said he was interested in making. So, you know, maybe we, maybe that fight could happen. It'd be a great fight. Personally, who I would like to see Andy Ruiz fight is Deontay Wilder. Two guys, that would be a big, big fight. Two guys coming off of losses, and then the winner fights Joshua versus Fury. That's a tournament that I think anybody could get behind. Um, but if you get a chance, please check out the article. It was really well written. It's on ESPN. Uh, it just delves into uh, Andy Ruiz from like after he won the title to like his firing of his trainer trainer uh to like him hiring uh canelo alvarez's trainer so we'll see how it goes teddy atlas was also in there and about they chronicled about how uh he almost took up the mantle of being andy ruiz's trainer and then it didn't work out i'm really excited to have on john duddy we're going to discuss everything we can uh he's (laughs) it's going to be a good interview so please stick around we're going to have john duddy on right now Thank you so much. And here's John Duddy. Wait, you took a two-week road trip during the pandemic. <laughs> well, I just wanted to I just wanted to get out of New York. I hear for, you. Uh, you know, because of the pandemic. Yeah. But uh, little, little, and I, and I was completely off. We were off the radar completely. Like, we weren't watching any news or anything. It was me and my wife. We were meeting, you know what I mean, her brother and a... Uh, his wife, and then when we were coming back, Francis, so why don't you stop in? And it was our friend and her husband. <laughs> so it was like, you know, we were on our own. We were meeting all our, our couples, like, you know, everywhere was kind of closed. I don't think we were doing any harm to anybody. We weren't running around kissing and hugging and trying to, do you know what I mean? But yeah, no, I know. Then, then when I get back to New York, <laughs> all of a sudden, the, the shit has hit the fan. And, uh, well, let me catch you up on what you missed. Uh, <laughs> A lot, a lot of crazy stuff, man. Well, I'm glad you're safe, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're safe. And before I forget, uh, when I was doing research for this, I want to wish you a uh, happy birthday. Radio? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's coming up, man. How's it feel to... Yeah, yeah. 41, huh? What's that? 41, huh? 41, that's right. How does yeah. it feel to be turning 41? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It was a lot better turning 40 because I was back <laughs> in Ireland last year on a... We were at a the, the said brother-in-law's uh, wedding. Okay. So, so 
was, uh, but uh, yeah, th- this year, I mean, it's hard. It's kind of hard to stay positive with all the negativity that's going on, and and then with, with this virus and the way it seems to have been handled, and I mean, like I suppose who else who else could know? But I mean, it's it's amazing how just every single person has been divided. Yeah, I mean, you know? from what I've gathered, over in Ireland, they seem to be a. Uh doing a pretty good job at containing it. I haven't heard yeah, much from over there. You know, well, you know, um, I, I think that there is T-shirt who, who doesn't really, I don't think he's, he doesn't have many fans back there, mm-hmm. like most people that are in power after they get it. But um, he, he seemed to be handling uh, the epidemic. Uh, I mean, he seemed very sure-footed. And whenever it came time to shut things down, there was no hesitation. There was no him in hand, or oh, well, should we do it now or should we do it later? And, even though uh, the UK, they were planning to keep sending kids to school and stuff like that there, uh, the Irish teacher just says, nope, we're shut down. We're not. Everyone stay home until we find out what this is. Right. So uh, he, he looked like a... He sort, to be honest with you, I think the, the same sentiments was coming from uh, Kumo. You know, I mean, he, you know, it's like, let, let's not mess around and think it's not that bad. People are dying. Let, let's take care of each other mm-hmm. and find out what this thing is. And, and unfortunately, they, they still don't seem to know any more about it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, 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 luckily enough for Ireland, they're not, uh, they're not burning down, they're not breaking and raiding stores and doing stuff like that there, you know. And, uh, I mean, the, the peace, they're, they're doing peaceful protests back there as well for what kind of, with what George Floyd kind of have ignited, you know. And it's sad to see it, but I suppose it was all coming to a head at some stage. And, yeah. and, now, and now all of a sudden, um, it's like everything. It's never. It's never black and white. There's always grey. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of. Like I have a lot of uh, friends that are police officers. That are good, good people. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. don't get what, what what happened to your man was a disgrace. And the fact that it's all been caught in video is even more sickening. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, but there no. But it's like everything. Everybody's not the same way. I mean, I have a lot of close friends like that are in the, the NYPD, and I mean, like they they do good job. They've got wives and kids and families and. Mm-hmm. You know, they try and tar them all a certain way. That there has to be change, but 100%. I think that there needs to be some acknowledgement that something needs to be done. You know, but on how that's going to happen, as we've all seen in the past, a bit of rioting, a bit of fighting seems to get the attention of the powers that be. But I mean, uh, but until then, we're just staying in the house, staying safe and sound. And it's funny just that the, the coronavirus is just taking a complete backseat now to, to everything else that's going on. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just completely halted sports, like, all over the place, which is, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm starting to, like, get into NASCAR now just because it was like, oh, my God, something different, you know, finally. Hi, hi, they actually are still doing the races, just with no audiences, is yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah, they're still doing the races, yeah. just no audiences. You know? uh, so this is Ireland's own John Duddy agreeing to be on the podcast during this crazy time we have right now man and let's I just talk want... about sport when there's no sport on <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, let's do that. let's talk about sports when there's no sports on <laughs> uh man we've we've been trying to get you on the show for god it seems like two years now and at first it was like we're gonna do it in person and then that just you know you were always busy or i was always busy and yeah. then <laughs> uh i just was like I, I work at a grocery store and then i was just like you know what fuck it let's let's uh let's just do it over the phone and that's well, I, I'm sorry that we never got the meeting uh, in person yet, but I'm sure in the near future that that, that hopefully will, will change. You know, yeah. but it's mad how um, I don't know. It's just that's one thing I can take away good from this virus. Yeah. To be quite honest with you, I've spent a lot of time at home. 
yeah. with my wife. We've had a lot of good time together. And, and you know what? They see picking up the phone now to call family and relatives or mm-hmm. FaceTime and stuff like that. It's it's not like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. It's like, no, I won't do it tomorrow. I'll do it right now. I got, <laughs> I've spoken to my friends and family at home more times than than not. No, I mean, we go get the groceries once a week. Yeah. Everything's just taking a little back step. This sort of mindless headless chicken running around trying to pay the bills and trying to do that like it's just I don't know I, I think there's some good things that the concern to be taken away from this and it's got to try and uh, take your focus off what you used to think was important and what's really is important is your health and your loved ones and, and who you have around you you know I agree yeah my mom calls me every single day to make sure that I'm okay and since I work at a grocery store she calls me like yeah. I'm on the front lines in Iraq it's or something a, it's a beautiful thing <laughs> yeah. you know it's uh I mean, my mum hasn't left the house in the last, I'd say it must be two and a half months now. Does you your mum live in Ireland or does she live over yeah. here? Oh, she, she, lives, she lives in Northern Ireland, so okay. she does, you know. So, but uh, she, she's uh, asthmatic as well, and don't get me wrong, my, my brother and my sisters are there, but, you know, she, I don't, she hasn't had any real, she hasn't had any physical contact with anybody mm-hmm. in, in nearly three months, you know, and seeing the granddaughters through the window or through the door, and, you know, it's, it must be... It must be really tough for her, like, but the fact that she, she has that, she counts herself lucky. Mm. Because I'm sure there's people out there that are that are on their own, you right. know, and, and, and that's, that's, that's a hard place to be. It know? is, it is. Now, you mentioned something now um, that a lot of us don't know, in America especially, that we don't know here. Um, you're not from Ireland, you're from Northern Ireland, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's the same country. As far as you're concerned, it's the same country. I, I appreciate that. As far as most Americans are concerned, it's the same country. Yeah. Uh, when, I fought, when I fought for my country, I was fighting for the uh, Ireland. So it was, I wasn't fighting for uh, Northern Ireland or, or Great Britain. I, I always fought for the uh, uh, Ireland. Nice. So, so, where, so where exactly are you from in Ireland? Derry City. Now... And that in itself is the first stumbling block because if you, 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 if you really pull out a map mm-hmm. or look it up on Google, um, it's actually uh, coined Londonderry, which mm-hmm. is what the, the English named it many years ago. They changed the name, but uh, we, we still call it Derry. Now, I have to ask, I don't know if you must have watched the hit TV show Derry Girls. How accurate is that show? That show is fantastic. I love that show. It's, I it's, love that show so much. <laughs> it's amazing how much a breath of fresh air it is because... There's a lot of stuff on it. I know it's a comedy. Mm-hmm. And the, my wife actually has a, a great connection with the actual creator and author. They went to the same high school together. No is, way. Yeah. Oh. yeah they, were in the, they were in the same class. And uh, my wife, when we were first started watching that, she started rhyming off names. And I'm like, Gronya, that's not their names. She says, no, John, that's their real name. <laughs> I know. I know them girls. I know who she's writing about. And... Uh, it was just, I, I was kind of like, what? And then when she started talking, I was going, oh my God. So my wife sort of has that first-hand view of where Alyssa McGee came up with her with her idea for Dairy Girls. And, and you see the whole, like the first episode kind of captures the way we grew up. Mm-hmm. You know, like bomb scares and stuff when the, the bridge was They make it seem so home. mundane, like the first it episode. <laughs> they're like, they're going to have to stay home from school, like... <laughs> Yeah, but even it was like, oh my God, can he hurry up and defuse that bloody bomb? And bomb? I, I got a football match in 20 minutes. And, I mean, that's the way it was. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny how comical you can look at it, but 
I mean, we, we became that desensitized to the likes of you know, checkpoints and being searched, walking to school with your school bag. I mean, you're walking to school with your school uniform on and a British soldier's point the rifle at you. And this even happened in my day, like, you know, and I grew up in the tail end of the Troubles. Mm. But it was around the 90s, it was around that same time that that's all based in Derry Girls. So yeah. it was still there, but it was just normal. Oh, if the Brits ask you what's in your bag, you made a joke. What you, what would you say? So, I'm a British guy. I'm a soldier. I see you. I'm like, hey, what's in your bag? What would you say? I would say, uh, whatever you think it is, and I would put it right down in front of you. <laughs> and I remember thinking, now as an adult, I would not have the balls to do something like that if somebody's pointing a gun at me. But when you were young, it happened that often. You didn't give a shit. You didn't. And it's like, really, I'm wearing a school uniform. I'm carrying a backpack. What do you think, son, the fucking bag? <laughs> Now on the but what's, what's scary about it too is that whenever I get, whenever I've grown a little older and you look back, that poor fella might have been only sixteen or seventeen himself. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. And he yeah. never asked to be there. Yeah, he got he drafted or something. Or... He just wanted to be a soldier for his country. Right. You know what I mean. So yeah. again, it's never black and white. There's a lot of grey, and I, and I think um, like what what we grew up on through. And I think this is probably been what's happened now with George Floyd. No, I don't I mean th- th- this. I think this country's been needing a big shake-up for, for a while because there was always talk of this change and that change and nothing really changing. But when people are getting hurt in the streets, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, racism is still a huge factor, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I just think that there has to be, you know, at the end of the day, like when we grew up in the Troubles, you know, there was rioting. There was fighting like that. There was never much of breaking into supermarkets and stores and stealing clothes. Not, not that I ever knew of, but again, I would have been very, very young. Right. Right? But, uh, I mean, but it was like, if, no, they're not going to listen to peace until they start getting hurt <clears throat> financially or something like that there. And then all of a sudden, Northern Ireland ended up getting into talks with England and, and with Ireland. And, and, and Ireland, no, Northern Ireland seems to be doing a lot better than it ever did. Like for the last 20 years, in a way, it's certainly come on leaps and bounds from the Troubles, you know? Now, you keep on mentioning the Troubles. Uh, for the people out there who don't know what the Troubles are, do you mind just giving us like a layman's, a quick explanation of what the Troubles were? Um, well, from my point of view, the, yeah. the, the Troubles, what the Troubles were is that the uh, Northern Ireland was a was a, a part of the island of Ireland that was kept under British rule, mm-hmm. so it was. And in that little part of, of the country, there was uh, Catholics who, who who still deemed to be Irish, and there was Protestants who uh, deemed themselves to be British. Mm-hmm. So there was. So um, I think it was around near the the late sixties. Um, the British army sent in their army because there was just turmoil going on. <coughs> With that, and there was a lot of racist, right? No, there was a lot of racism. There was a lot of prejudice. Prejudice. Catholics didn't have very few Catholics at jobs. Protestants at all the great jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, there was segregation, and it's, it's a lot of the same stuff that we hear today, unfortunately, and the great country of, of, of America, which you know it's great because that's why we all came here. Yeah. Um, but uh, in, in the north, uh, then in nineteen seventy one. Uh, a bike woman habit where it was a, a civil rights protest and unfortunately uh, there was 13 people shot dead in that by the, the, the British paratroopers Was that we, Bloody uh, Sunday? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, from that day uh, that was the day where they actually were able to get into a no-go area mm. in Derry which was which was a Catholic area which was uh, 
uh, barricaded off from the British Army. They had been in that area for a couple of years. And on that day, a bloody Sunday, they were able to get in to that whole area. They, they, you know, they keep it on their British rule, what, what have you. But on that day, like when my uncle, uh, Jackie Dolly, he, he was one of the first fatalities of that day, 17-year-olds mm-hmm. shot in the back, you know. But uh, but that was that ignited them, one of the biggest uh, uh, voluntary uh, sign-ups for the IRA. And then from the 70s on to the 80s, it was just pure madness for that between the ARA, the British Army, and uh, the, the Protestant paramilitaries. Um, they were just, you no. Know, one was blew up, one was shot, one was shot, one was blew up, and it was just this ongoing kind of thing. And, and until the 90s, mm. when uh, my Martin McGinnis, Jerry Adams, Ian Paisley, um, David O'Leary, and then, uh, thank God, uh, Bill Clinton got involved, <laughs> and sent the guy called George Mitchell, mm. who helped pen the agreement, the, the Good Friday Agreement, which uh, at the time, for some reason, they were all able to agree on, which never happened before in our time, mm-hmm. when you had Protestants and Catholics working equally together and uh, the govern the governing of the North of Ireland, which was a magnificent moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's things broken down since then, but it's still in it's still in the, the rooms where they're having conversations. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of the trouble still going on. But it's much, much less than what it was. And uh, I don't know. That, that's what Northern Ireland was in, in a nutshell. And you were born in this time, and you grew up in this time. And uh, I was, bo- I was born in '79. You were born so in '79. Um, so what was, what was life like for you growing up? It was great. I mean, we were kids. You know, um, you never realized that uh, you were in a war zone, but mm-hmm. you know. Burned out cars or uh, police check army checkpoints. Never police. More like it was always uh, the British army checkpoints and stuff like that. But the camouflage, the helicopters landing sometimes in a field mm-hmm. not too far from your house. And I remember watching Tour of Duty when I was a kid late at night with my parents, and I was like, "Wow, that's just like what they were doing." No, and that and that TV show they land down and they all get out of the helicopter and stuff like that. Them. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of good friends. Um, I wasn't. I love sports, but I wasn't oh, too capable at, at, at most of them. Like, but you know, all we did was play soccer and football and and whatnot. And then my, my dad took me to the gym when I was very young, just to just to keep an eye on me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was five, so he was training, and I slowly started falling in love with the, with the, with the, the sport of boxing. And I had my first fight when I was seven. What made you What made you fall in love with boxing? Um. Well, my dad. My dad was my hero when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when I was watching him training and seeing the camaraderie, and we used to watch old tapes all the time of Muhammad Ali and uh, Ray, watching Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran, and, and then Barry McGuigan was a big hero of mine, and my dad was a, was like one of his smart partners earlier in Barry's career, you know? Wow. Now, Barry so McGuigan was, like, was, was the... That, uh, that was my idol when I grew up, like Barry, Barry McGuigan. And in, our, in our house, there was Barry McGuigan, Muhammad Ali, and Sugar Ray Leonard. Like, that was my three heroes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Barry McQuiggan was the former featherweight champion from Ireland, correct? Yes, he's from an area called Clonus. Clonus. Same, is that where Kevin McBride's from? Um, yeah, Kevin McBride's from, uh, from around that area, too. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh, yeah. Must be something in the water. I'm telling you, for the size of a man, Kevin McBride is. Hey, he's, he's such a big gentle giant. What a, what a, a beautiful human being. Hey, he's a really, really good man, you know? Yeah. 
So you're seven years old, you're in the boxing gym, you have your first amateur fight at seven, but you said it yourself, you weren't very talented, uh, correct, right? Yeah, I, I, I never I never thought I was talented, but I love the training. I mm-hmm. love the I, I love that the, the going up and it's funny like there's there's a great camaraderie in a boxing gym. There's not much talking goes on. Right. But it's like the talking's the sound that you hit in the bag, mm-hmm. and if you're not hitting the bag, you're not working out. Right. So, so the, the sound of the skipping ropes. If your skipping ropes aren't, aren't aren't moving fast enough, then you're not skipping. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If the if the wits aren't clicking uh, often enough, then you're not working out. You know, and that's where the the Sort of the language had, and if you went and you were seen, and the only time you were heard is when you were working out, and if you were working hard, everybody could hear you, you know? <laughs> now, when you were an amateur, isn't it true that you once had an amateur fight with Andre Ward? I did. How, how'd that go? <laughs> he beat me by one point, the shape. Oh, Andre Ward beat you by one point. Yeah, it was back in the computer score. I think it was in, it was, it was in oh, 1999 right. or 2000, and the U.S. team were traveling and they 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 already fight the Irish team mm-hmm. and Andre Ward was a middleweight wow. and our middleweight got injured or something so they go to the next they, they want they they knew that he was unbeknownst to me you know, but they knew that he was exceptional so they were like well we gotta get the next best thing to fight him and they, so they they asked me John would you fancy fancy uh, moving up the middleweight to fight the middleweight champion and I was like okay <laughs> just like that <laughs> yep. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Because, uh, and then uh, it was 5-4 uh, on points, you know. He was a great mover. And this was all just before, this was like a year before he won the Olympics, I think. Yeah, yeah, give or, or two. Or a few years, two years before he won the Olympics. But uh, yeah, but here, you know what, that, that's what was great about with the amateur boxing. I fought Saku Powell, uh, an R, a New Yorker, a, a Brooklyn mm-hmm. fighter, and uh up in uh, Foxwood Casinos, and he, he beat me too up there. It was the first time I fought in the States uh, in the amateurs. But, you know, it'd be, it'd be funny to, to believe that, what, uh, seven or eight years later, we'd be training in Gleason's. <laughs> we wouldn't have been the best. I mean, we weren't best buddies, but we knew each other, we respected each other. We've never passed each other without speaking, and we always supported each other whenever they were in their fighting, you know. And we would have sparred a wee bit too. But I was like, going, that, that's bad. Like, and, you know, People don't see that uh, the camaraderie of fighters, you know, behind behind the scenes, they're all under the, the usual bullshit of bad language and uh, I hate you and you hate me kind of crap, you know? Yeah. So what did your mom and dad think of you, uh, think of your boxing career? Were they supportive of it or were they just like, you should probably find something else to do? <laughs> well, my, my dad, my dad was all lured and, uh, you know, um, you know, he, he was glad, or he, I think he was kind of proud that that, that, I, that I wanted to do it. And my mum wasn't so keen, which is understandable, you know. Um, but uh, I, I loved it. I loved the boxing, and even back then when I was training, you had good days and you had bad days. Mm-hmm. But you could, but you could always go back. You yeah. know what I mean? And when you went back, you learned more. Yeah. And that that that's there was just I never had to be pushed. My dad tried to maybe steer me in an R direction, like because. I tried, like, soccer's pretty big where, where I come from. Everybody, right. like, you know, was playing soccer and stuff like that. But I'm right-footed, and, and I've got two left feet. You know, I, I was useless, <laughs> so I was, you know. And I, 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 tried, I played basketball in high school for five five or six years, which was which I loved, too. But again, I was no, never going to be able to dunk the ball unless I jumped off the side of a wall, you know. <laughs> and I was terrible at three points. Three-point uh, shots. Like so that. what What but use I, for you on a basketball court? You couldn't dunk and you couldn't shoot? Yeah, not really, no. <laughs> I, 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 was, I could get the ball. 
Okay. Uh, Mike was good at getting the you ball. You're rebounding. I could go shut guys down, get the ball, but okay. as soon as there was a couple of guys we had, Lomas, that were very talented, uh, Kevin Dehan and Brian Houston, all I'd be looking for them straight away. I'd be like, there you go, 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 go score. <laughs> you know? So, uh, what other, did you have any other, like, passions or dreams that you wanted to pursue, or was it always just, I'm going to be a pro boxer? As a, as a kid, it was, honestly, it was just a boxer, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, well, I, I think... It was just a boxer because that was a, a, a reality. You know what I mean? There right. was my dad was a professional for a short time, but the the, the head trainer at the time at our gym was Charlie Nash. Mm -hmm. Charlie Nash was a was European champion. Charlie Nash fought for a world title. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And it's mm -hmm. like that's that's achievable. Like and as a kid, like I was always on the like movies and stories and stuff like that. There for some reason, English was the only subject I seemed to be good at at school. And I didn't really have much. I didn't really have much care for it because the teacher didn't like me. But it was the only subject I ended up passing. And so, like movies and stories and things like that. There, but again, there was no drama classes. There was no. I'm sure there had it. There, there, there was, but it just wasn't in, in the circles that I ran in. And right. even with the lads, like everybody was kind of good at soccer and stuff like that, and I could play along. But I was the only one going to the boxing club. And even if someone came to try it out, like they were all amazed at how the training. Like, even the warm-up, they used to be exhausted. And it was just the warm-up. It was like, now we're getting ready to train. You know, uh, no, there was, I found someone very confident in a, in, in a boxing gym. Now, you didn't fight your first pro fight in Ireland. You fought in America. How did you end up in the United States for your first um, pro fight? A friend of mine worked at construction. Okay. He, uh, a guy called Tony Smuff. He, he, he was uh, out in New York working the, uh, the summers. He would go out every uh, year or so and work for three or four months and, and then go back to Ireland, you know, and when I was out, they met up with a couple of people, a couple of Irish guys that, that had some kids that they put through the gloves and stuff like that, and I was, I was Irish champion at the time, I was about 21, 22, and I just came disillusioned with the sport because we went to the Europeans, uh, most of us got all beat in our first fight and stuff like that, and mm. I don't know, we, like we were traveling around you know, from country to country, and, and it, sounds, it sounded great, before I got and then when I got into it, it was good for a while, but all of a sudden then you're, you're living out of a suitcase, you see four walls, which is your hotel room, you're, you see the scale, you make quit, you're fighting in an arena, and then you're gone, you know, like you're right. in Belarus and Bucharest and uh, Perm, and they're in all these different cities, Paris, Bordeaux, but you never seen any of them, because right. you were training, you were making weight, and you were fighting, and I ended up saying, you know what, I'm done with, I was done with boxing, and my friend Tony Smith says, look, he knew a couple of boys in New York, that uh, helped, you know, were, were interested in boxing and I, I wanted to, uh, you know, were they, they interested in anyway and seeing me, so I, I flew over to meet them. Uh, I, won, I, won, uh, I won the metros, the New York metros, and that was around, i say, the summer of 2003, and they were like, well, sure, we'll hold off the next February and go to the gloves, and I'm like, how much does that pay? <laughs> like, well, no, it doesn't pay, it's amateur, and I said, well, I'm not, I'm not hanging around here. They fight amateur. I, I'm already Irish number one. I, I want to go pro. Right. So I landed in February 2003. September 2003 was my pro debut up in uh, against Tariq Rashid up in Jimmy's Bronx Cafe. It was in the undercard of one of Paulie Malinaji's fights. Wow. And, uh, uh, and, and that's the first time I met Tom Hauser, who's a, a boxing writer and a, a, a huge... Oh, he wrote the biography on Muhammad Ali, right? Yes. Yeah, that That's guy. Yeah. The very same man. And uh, I remember I had Al Galvin was on my corner, the famous Al Galvin, the, okay. the corner man. He was, uh, he was in my corner. 
uh, along with Neil Ferrara, an old Italian, a U.S. Marine, ex-U.S. Marine chef. I mean, uh, but all Gavin was there, and all like, I mean, I was going, oh my God, this is the guy that wraps Lennox Lewis's hands. Right. So, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because back in 2003, he was still doing that job. <laughs> and then at the weekends, he would be wrapping kids' hands for the Golden Gloves. <laughs> I was like, wow. Like, he just works with I thought if you're working with Lennox Lewis, that's just who you work for. Yeah. Al Gavin, he trained kids, he trained everybody, and uh, that was my that was my first fight. Uh, I think I fell in love with it all over again, and just uh, I just put the head down and just kept working away at it, you know? So, you have a unique experience as a, like, almost, I would say, 100% of the guests I've had on the show are born in America, they, you know, they started in America, but you moved from Ireland to America. What was your first experiences? What was your first couple of experiences like in the United States? What was your first impressions? Well, my first impressions of America happened in 1993 oh. whenever I came over with a County Derry board boxing team. Okay. My dad, my dad was a trainer. Charlie Nash was a trainer. There was, I think there was like 17 or 18 of us and we came over and we, we were in Boston for a few days, Connecticut for a few days and we finished up in New York. But I remember whenever we touched out and I think we, we didn't land at GFK, we landed in New York. And the only reason why it had to be New York was because when we were going back, your man was taking us to his house. We're coming over the George Washington Bridge, and all of a sudden you see the Manhattan skyline. It's beautiful, and, right? And uh, what do you call him? Dire, uh, dire Straits comes on the radio, gets oh. your money for nothing and your chicks <laughs> for free. And we were all just bouncing and rocking our heads like crazy. And I was just thinking, I'm a New York man. This is, <laughs> this is your city. This is your home now. New York, and, I, and honestly, at 13, I, I, I knew, I said, I'm coming back here, I'm wow. going to live here. I, I just remembered it, there was just something, there was just something about it. And even though we didn't do, we went to a few gyms, they train and stuff like that there. Like, um, we've never seen Madison Square Garden, we were too busy looking to go to uh, clothes stores to get pairs of Levi's and Cumberland <laughs> boots and textures. You wanted to look like, you wanted to look like Americans in a weird way? Would that, would that be accurate? Yeah, well, at the, at the, at Nike Air too, Nike Air Jordans, that oh. was, yeah, because everything we've seen on TV, like, I, as I say, in 93 too, I was playing basketball in high school, so mm-hmm. I remember thinking, like, I had to get myself a pair of Nike Air. Yeah, the, the Nike Air Jordans were still too expensive, but I got a pair of Nike Air uh, basketball boots, <laughs> and I mean, like, whenever I walked back, whenever we got back to Terry, I felt like I was walking in air. You felt like you were uh, a rock star, you felt like with your Nike yeah, Air boots. And I, and, I, and I had my, and I had a, an NFL jacket and i don't know how because we never went to texas but i had a dallas cowboy uh nfl jacket as well <laughs> did and people in Derry know that that was a football team like a yeah like, it was oh. the cowboys i was like what one's that and everybody else because you didn't want to get the same as what somebody else had the right. team yeah you know? yeah, so yeah. I, I seen the cowboy one and it's a nice color it's blue and it's silver it's got a nice star i'm like i'll take that one i don't even know who the dallas cowboys was but i'm walking around <laughs> An NFL uh, jacket on me, Levi jeans, and a pair of Nike Air, Nike Air by basketball boots. Like I'm telling you, I was I was top of the word. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> At 13, that's all you needed to make you happy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's so great, man. Uh, do you wait? Do you still support the Dallas Cowboys to this day because of that jacket? No, no? I, I never supported them. You never supported them. I knew Tony Mourinho. I was just wearing it for pure material goods. People are like, whenever we got back to Ireland, I was like, wow, that's a nice jacket. Where'd you get that from? It's this Dallas Cowboys on it. Did you get that in Dallas? Yes, I did. 
You know, it's like New York, Dallas, same thing. What does it matter? You know, it's just but, it's a right. but, but what's so what's so funny then about me telling you this story, and I never really put it together before. I ended up being one of the first fights televised in the new Dallas Cowboy Stadium there. Oh Texas. my god, I just realized that. Yeah, you're on the undercard of um, Pacquiao Claudio. Yeah. Uh, no. Wow, that was the first ever fight at Dallas Cowboy Stadium. Yeah. Yeah. It all comes full circle. <laughs> it was, it was not, you know what? I never even put that together back then. You know what I mean? I think when you're loving in the moment, you're always looking forward. But yeah. I've, been, I've been retired 10 years now. <laughs> Ten years this June, and mm. well, I haven't fought in ten years, thank God. And uh, and it's only now all these little memories are are, are popping up, and it's like it's, it's like connecting the dots. It's unreal. Mm. It's like holy shit. I feel like you have to be a Cowboys fan now. Yeah, I don't know. I, for me, sports at the moment is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would rather watch a movie to be honest with you. I um, hear you. Yeah. I I, I honestly like. I, don't get me wrong. I, I love watching. I enjoy watching football, I enjoy watching basketball and stuff like that, but I don't know, there's just something, there's no characters anymore, everything, like basketball, they're all crying about what the fans are calling them, <laughs> American football, I don't know, there's all these, this talk about cheats and steroids and stuff like that, and, and then, like, I, I always thought fighting was one of the few sports where you couldn't get away with doing that, and now, unfortunately, boxing and UFC and all that stuff is all littered with drug users, cheats yeah. and steroids, and you know, unfortunately, <clears throat> I mean, like Manny Pacquiao, what do you call him? Uh, like Freddie Roach has had a few fighters that's failed drug tests, yeah. you know? And Freddie Roach was training none other than Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., yeah. whenever he taught me. And you know what? It's like, wow, he never got tired. He got tired in every other fight, but he never got tired against me. Wow. Well, so, <laughs> you brought up an interesting point here. Uh, did you... Uh, was there any other fighters that you may have suspected of doing steroids when you were fighting them? No, no, just not, 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 not any of that. I just that Chavez. I thought, Chavez stuck know, out in your mind, well, really. Maybe Chavez is. You know what I mean? Like for for being someone that's been famously known as being lazy. Yeah. You know, and cutting corners. I mean, that's that's the proper character for that bullshit. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. The first time anybody ever came up to me and offered me. Uh, you know, this will help you, wasn't fucking Texas. And I, I remember a guy coming up and saying, here, you know, I, I've got some things here that could be very beneficial to you. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, maybe it could give you, you know, give you that little extra or whatnot. And I was like, here, hold on a second, I want to get my trainer. And he's like, really? What for? I said, I want to get him for an ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what? I says, yeah, because I'm going to batter your fucking head on. Get lost. <laughs> some little scum. And that was the first time I ever actually seen that, you yeah. know, and I'm sure it's probably been in the sport a lot longer, and there was always ways of cutting corners and stuff like that. Like, but to be like, and then no, you hear about how oh, Holyfield, and I don't know. I just always thought that boxing was one of the pure sports where it was like, look, I can do my best. If I won, I won. If I lose, it's on me. Yeah. You know, and you hear, and then you hear stories like, you no, know, Sugar Shane Mosley, who was a great fighter, he failed tests. Mm -hmm. There's rumors about De La Hoya and all the rest of them. All I know is that from from after the the late 90s, from the early 2000s up, all of a sudden you're getting featherwits, lightwits, light welters, welterwits, moving up the middlewit, yeah. you know, light muddle, muddle, super muddle, and knocking these guys out. And it's like, no, good <laughs> big guy beats good little guy. That's that's how it's supposed to go. I agree. You know what I mean? And, I mean, it just, 
it just unbalanced the scales completely. And there, I just seen a post about Roy Jones Jr. Like, I actually love watching Roy Jones Jr. Mm-hmm. when I was younger, but I mean, he, he was more athletic than a, than a fighter. I mean, his hand speed and foot speed and coordination were, were unbelievable. And I remember, and I used to like him because he was a basketball player too. Mm-hmm. I remember watching documentaries on him. And then, again, what happens as soon as he starts slowing down, all of a sudden, and he says, if I start getting knocked out, I'm quitting. But he doesn't. He, he doesn't. coming back. There was Tarver, there was Glenn Johnson. And I was kind of like, wow, that's, that's, that sucks. Yeah. You know? So let's get back, getting back to your life and uh, the beginning of your career. Um, back in 2003, what did you have any jobs to support yourself and support your career? Like, what, what would you do? Was it yeah, all boxing? Well, the guys, the guys, the guys that, that, that I came over to see, mm-hmm. um, that, that they were construction guys. That they mm-hmm. had a few, they, they had a, a, a few small companies, you know. So I'd have been out along with with one of them. Even they would have been driving the big truck, and I'd have been offloading concrete blockers, stuff for materials and things like that. There, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I was lucky because when I came here, I said to myself, I, I, "Look, I'll work, but I don't want to work. I want to work in the gym. Right. I'm, here to, I'm here to train. I'm here to fight." And and uh, that was, as I say, I went out. I went out a, a, a good few days, but if there was a day I was sparring and stuff like that. There, it was like, "No, John, you don't have to go to work in the morning. You, you go to the gym." You know what I mean? And that was that was my priority. It was to be a fighter. Mm. And I think that that would have been the only reason why I, I, I came all this way. Because mm. I was like, no, you can't do two things at once. And, and I, again, and it goes back to that little hang in the back of my head. I never thought it was good enough. I always had to work extra, extra hard at it, just like everybody else. But for me, I think that's what, that's what just, I said, like, as long as I, I can do the training, and I used to love the training. Right. I mean, as long as I can focus on that 100%, then I have no excuses. I can handle whatever you put in front of me, you know? And, and that's how it all started off. That's how it, it, it got going. And, you know, funny... I was looking at my boxing record. I was only a professional for seven and a half years. But you made such an impact on the sport. Like you were huge at one point. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you know what's fascinating about it? There was in between, in between that seven and a half years, there had to be about a year's worth of time where I was sitting on my ass because of <laughs> I, I, whenever I went back to Ireland, my my paperwork wasn't uh, updated or whatever. I was told it was, but it wasn't. So they never let me back into the states for an hour, seven or eight months. And then I had the whole uh, uh, legal problems then with the, the Irish ropes and stuff where I wasn't allowed to fight for a certain length of time until I I, 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 I sort of was like, you know what, give them whatever the fuck they want. I, the only way I can make an impact and look after myself is if I've got my hands in control of it. And, mm. if I, and when I have my hands in control, it's when I'm in the ring. Yeah. And, and that's what happened. But again, it's funny, like, a, it, it was a... It was a... It's, it was a, it was one hell of a ride, you know. But I, I never actually realised how how, uh, how short a time it was. And, and I did I, no, I did kind of jump up out, out of nowhere. It was that fight under uh, Kevin McBride. So it was and uh, uh, open Foxwoods too out of all places. Mm. My first time I was on ESPN. Mm. So it was, that's what kind of put me on the map. And then after that fight, I think I had my had my first fight Madison Square Garden, and then boom, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at your record, you barely ever fought a guy with a losing record. Like, you you weren't really handed, you know, stiffs, per se. Was that by choice, or is that because of your management? Well, I, of course, the management had to, have, <clears throat> had to have something to do with that, too. Right. And, and that, that was the other thing. Like, uh, your amateur record doesn't show up on your pro record. Exactly. You know, and that's one thing I noticed about New York. Like, like I was meeting guys 
in their in their early twenties, going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'd love to try the boxing, and I'm I'm kind of thinking you're you're a little late. Because <laughs> like as I say, like I had my first boxing experience when I was seven, mm-hmm. and from ten years on, like but from ten, the first time I got to the finals, I was thirteen. Right. The time I was fifteen, I would won the Irelands, I won the nationals, so I was in that mix. You know what I mean? So by the time I was twenty three. I had about a hundred on record, a hundred and thirty amateur fights under my belt with thirty mm-hmm. losses, yeah. and I probably never mind the sparring and training camps in between. Do you know what I mean? Like so, if you're coming to, even if you were coming at eighteen, I, I know for me, I'm kind of going at that. Like there's very few world champions out there that started that late. Yeah, uh, to probably go on and make an impact in the sport. I think Nigel Ben might have been one of them. Sergio Martinez didn't start until he, he was like twenty-one or twenty-two. He yeah. started. He yeah. got a late start in the sport. Um, there you go, but Sergio you, Martinez. But he, again, he, he was a uh, he was a bicyclist. He was, he was on, on like he was a soccer star. He, yeah. was, he cycled. You no, know, he was an all around fitness yeah. fitness guy too. But I mean, that's an all thing. Mm-hmm. Like I trained with a lot of guys that were much further than me, triathletes and stuff like that. Mm. But once they get into the ring, <laughs> it's a different ball game. Exactly. You know? No, exactly, exactly. Now. Uh, we're going to skip ahead a little bit cause I about your career because there's one fight that uh, didn't happen that I wish would have happened. How come you ne- you and Kelly Pavlik never hooked up? Because that would have been a huge fight. Yeah, um, that was, to be honest with you, I was, that was actually to happen after I fought a guy called Waldy Smutchett, mm-hmm. uh, a, a Canadian-Moroccan. Oh. Um, I was in the undercard, I think, of uh, the, the heavyweights, Abra- Abra- Abramovich and... Uh, was it Abramovich and Klitschko or something like that there? And okay. um, leading up to that fight, I I, I had I had beat uh, Howard Eastman back in back in Belfast, so I did. And uh, I was training along with Don Turner at the time, and all my train all my sparring partners were were all six foot, six foot taller. So I'm not making excuses. I boxed the worst three rounds of my life in the first three rounds, and uh, I do believe I won the fight. But as this, you know, you can have. A good one or a bad one. If it was a bad one, it was ugly. I was cut the guts. I didn't look good. Mm-hmm. And supposedly, unbeknownst to me, the guys that were supposedly handling me says that they had already signed a deal and a contract and signed and all this crack. And uh, but because the performance was so bad that uh, uh, Bob Arum declined. To, oh. This is not 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 thought he would get killed or whatnot. So that fight, unfortunately, never happened. Um, and that wasn't. That wasn't even the first one. There was, there was actually there was talk about me even fighting uh, Jermaine Taylor on stage. I think I think you could have beaten Taylor. I think you could have you taken know, him. Now again, I don't know. Yeah. And at that point in time in my career, I didn't care. What do you mean? What do you mean you didn't care? You just because this is a no, world title just, fight. Let me explain. Yeah. Of course I cared, yeah. but it's like it's a world title. Yeah. I didn't care who they put in front of me. Gotcha. As okay. far as I was concerned, if you're fighting for a world title, mm-hmm. you're fighting the best of the best. Right. And, and and I remember, and I don't know why they never looked at it the way I did. The first time I fought in the garden against Patrick Thompson, I went eight rounds, I went the distance. But who was on the main event? Gail Cotto and Paulie Malinaji. That's a famous fight because Malinaji. And Paulie Malinaji, I, I get on well with Paulie. Paulie's. He's got the, the gift of the gab, the talk, the whole, you know what I mean? He, oh, yeah, he's a great commentator. I, he is a very good commentator because he calls it as, as it is too. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy listening to him. But 
Paulie, Paulie was never a puncher. Paulie was a slick boxer, counter puncher, mover. Miguel Cotto shut him down from like the first round. Can I tell you something about that fight? Uh, we actually interviewed the uh, a doctor who was was the fight doctor for that fight, and she noticed after the first round that Paulie had a damaged eye and that he shouldn't yeah. be fighting after yeah. the first round. But they let the fight continue after yeah. the first round. Not, not only did Paulie have a damaged eye, Paulie Paulie's hands were brittle. Paulie never Paulie never threw his punches with a closed fist. Mm. That's why his hands were so fast. But that's why he was never known as a knockout. As a knockout guy, yeah. so he always kept break, breaking his hands too. And I remember, I seen him the day after the fight, man, and he was totally and utterly deflated. Yeah. I remember, I, I actually ran into him by accident. We were driving in Manhattan, and he was crossing the street, him and his cousin, and I got out and I gave him a hug and I looked at him, and he was like, "Apologize." I says, "That's an all thing too." When fighters lose, they start apologizing to everybody. I'm sorry, I lost. I'm sorry. And I remember looking at him saying, "Paulie, let me tell you this, man." I says, "There was more people that hated you before you got in that ring." Because you were talking shit, I says. But you walked out of that arena a fucking champion. Yeah. I says. I says you had every excuse in the world to stay on that stool. You came out every single round. Yeah. With all your with your injuries and everything, you came out and he couldn't put you away. I says, man. I says you need to take your, you need to take a deep breath and, and whenever this fall settles, you'll realize you took a huge step forward. He fought the world champion, even though he got beat. He was in that category then. Because then he had a few more fights and sure didn't he won a world title. Mm-hmm. And I always remember thinking, if I had a fought Jimmy Taylor or Kelly Pavlik, if I had to get beat, it didn't matter. I was in there. And I knew them too because they were tall, big guys. Mm-hmm. And the way that I liked it, and I'm mixing it up. I could have I done I, I think I would have done all right against them. Whether I won or not, doesn't really matter. I could have made us. That's what Al Galvin says to me way back after that first fight. He says, you know what? He listens to what he's told. He can be a good pro, but where that can go from then, and see just getting been, been told you're a good pro, you listen to the instructions, you do what you're told, and you come prepared, that's a good pro there. Now, success-wise, that's all up for anything else, but I remember thinking, if I could get in there with them too, then I could break into that, into that level. Right. And I never did. Does it bother never, you never, a little bit that you never fought for a world title? Well, I mean, the Kelly Pavlik, the Jermaine Taylors, I, I know, I, I had a, a, a version, no, uh, the alphabet titles, I don't know, I had, I had two belts, I think, at one stage, but they weren't, they weren't world, they weren't world titles, they didn't change the bank, the bank balance, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Right. I, and don't get me wrong, I was earning, great, no, good money, I mean, if you compare it to a construction worker, <laughs> I, I was earning good money, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, as I say, with that loss with Polly, all of a sudden, People were like going, oh my God, he was beat. But man, he fought for them 12 rounds. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then all of a sudden, what happens then is one or two fights and then he fights for a world title and he wins a world title. Yeah. I think he ends up winning two world titles, you know? Yeah, I think Pauly won two world titles in two different weight classes, I think. Yes, yeah. yeah. You know, and here's a guy, the, the, honestly, Poyer, Poyer left home and everything. He never had any Poyer. It was speed. Mm-hmm. It was always his speed, his fast hands and fast feet. He was fun, like even sparring him. He was a nightmare to spar. You, you just you could you could hardly you could hardly find him mm-hmm. unless you could touch him to the body. You know. Right, right, right. So at the end of the day, you can look at your career and be like, I did the best I did, and I have nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm really happy that. Um, but yeah, I would have loved to have only, seen you, you fight that. You can only do what you're putting. 
front of. I agree. You know, um, there was a couple of opportunities, and so that there was Kelly Pavlik. Um, that never happened, and before that, there was rumours again. But rumours are rumours of, of Jermaine Taylor, but that that never happened either. Mm -hmm. And then, if you fast forward on, there was a possibility of some guy wanting to fight me in Belfast. I, and you think you called him Vernon Phillips? Oh, Vernon Phillips, that would have been a good fight. <laughs> yeah, never, never, never knew nothing about that. The BBC called me from from Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland BBC called me and says. So how do you feel about the fight? And I'm like, what fight? <laughs> well, it, it looks like it looks like your promotion company or Vernon uh, uh, Phillips put money down to book the arena for a certain date. And I was like, going, I'm sorry, I haven't even heard about this. Then Tom Hauser called me and says, John, I was in Ireland at the time. He says, you need to get back here. He says, because there's a deal on the table. I think it's very beneficial to you. It's not an easy fight. I think it's a great opportunity for you to win a world title. But for some reason. Uh, your, your your people aren't tolerating it, aren't, aren't taking it on. And he says, and I, I even said to them, I'll write the contracts for you. We'll knuckle down and we'll get the best for both fighters. He said, a guy is willing to leave America and come and fight you in your home country. And he says, no. Oh. <laughs> so when... Um, no, sorry, continue. No, uh, well, to be honest with you, whenever I asked, whenever I went got back to New York and asked the questions, there was no real kind of answer to kind of because they were looking to take me up to Canada then and then they were, and then all of a sudden oh well they were going to have me fight back home in Ireland in a little village in, in the Republic uh, in front of like uh, 900 people or 1100 people and I just um, but I just finished selling out a 6,000 6,000 seater in, 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 in Belfast I, I don't get it what's I don't, I don't understand and that's when the big breakdown because I started asking more questions and I was wondering what, why I'm why was that opportunity? Why was I not told about that opportunity? Mm -hmm. Why was I not told about that? Because again, it was a word a shot of fighting for a world title. I said, so there was three potentials that never ever happened, and it sucks. One thing I one thing uh, that I that I really respect about you is that you knew when to retire, um, that you, and you haven't made a comeback yet. Is there no plans for a comeback, right? Not a hope. Dear God, you crazy. <laughs> oh. I went out a jog with my brother-in-law there last week. Hey, I, I ran a mile and all of a sudden I'm getting this pain in my calf. And, and it's like, if I keep going, this calf's going to go on me. And I've had it for about two years. And I could go and run a wee bit. I wasn't even running harder than on. And I'm like going, oh my God, this is, I'm getting old. This is terrible. You know? <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, hitting the bag and stuff like that. I, I, I still enjoy doing that. You know, nice. I, I do a lot of swimming. I don't do as much road work anymore. Um, I don't, unfortunately, I can't do any swimming now because all the swimming pools are closed. Right. But uh, but yeah, no, um, not a not a hope, not a hope. <laughs> um, no. So, uh, when did you know personally that it was time to retire? Did you know after the Chavez fight, before the Chavez fight, or even like a couple of fights before that? I always, I always, I always felt the deep down in my uh, no. I, there's a few fighters that says it, but I remember Barry McGuigan saying it whenever he finally called it a day because he called it a day and then he came back and then and then he beat or whatnot and he always says he says the first person to know that a fighter's done is a fighter mm -hmm. but he's also the last one to, to listen <laughs> yeah. so he has you know and I, I, I think even from from around the whole like the whole like the legal process that happened between the whole split up and that was that was a tough bloody tech because when you trust and, 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 and you love people and, you know, 
and it's like all of a sudden that no, we were all we were all on the same plan, and then all of a sudden that no, their 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 priorities ended up being more important than mine. <laughs> that was a real that was a real sickener, and I think kind of from then on, my heart and, and the business of fighting started getting lesser and less. And by the time I was fighting Chavez, like I, I even cut training camp. Okay. The Pennsylvania short, like I, I remember after two or three weeks, I said to her, I said, all right, you know what? I've trained in New York for how many fights before, out of Gleason's and whatnot. I says, I says, I'm tired of waking up in bed my own. I want to go back and stay with my wife. I says, let's, and Harry, Harry, you need to look at me. And, and, uh, and I said, that was before Chavez. I think it was a few fights before that. I think Waldy, Mitchy uh, Munoz, I, I fought him in the garden and the arena and I stopped him in the second or third round or something. And the biggest reaction that I could get out of me was just they left my hand there. Mm. I was like, "Is this it? I mean, wow. Well, where's the where's the fire? The fans are going crazy. Like, and even that wasn't giving me anything. And so after the Chavez fight, there was the potential for me and Andy Lee to box. And I'm, like, I, like you follow boxing, like, but here's two Irish fighters that have got big names yeah. that no in the sport at the time. I mean, if you can't get up for that. Then you, you you're on the you're on the wrong planet. Never mind the wrong sport. I think, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think your and retirement I, really sent shockwaves through the boxing world because it's like this guy's retiring and he's got all these offers on the table and he's only lost twice and why yeah. doesn't he keep going? And this, is, and this is the thing too. Like and and you no, know, you look back and you know, that was that would have been the biggest purse I ever got. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it still wasn't that big a purse, but it was it was the main event. It was on HBO. It was going to be in the Mohican Sun or Foxwoods or somewhere. and You couldn't get yourself you know, up two, for it. Two, two, two Irishmen finally going to, you know, because that would have set off a chain reaction. And I'm sure we, uh, uh, what do you call him? Uh, dear God, Matthew Macklin and all and stuff yeah. like that too. Like, no, there would have been a great, you know, it, it mightn't have been, it wouldn't have been on the same level as Hearns and Duran and Leonard and Hagler, but we could have had four or five guys here from Ireland all vying for the, for the Irish crowd in America, do you know what I mean? It would have been maybe you go up and wait. Would, would have been would have been brilliant, I think. But I, I went to the gym, and I'm telling you, there was white collar boxers, there was Golden Glove fighters that were there was days that were able to take the head off me. Oh. And, and 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 then Harry, and then I know, and then again, because you never hurt them guys. Then I was going on there and rubbing the stomach clean out of them. And Harry be looking, I be going, what are you doing? I says, well, he just tried to take my head off, and it's like, John. And I remember him saying to me, he says, don't be that guy. And I remember thinking, I remember looking at people like that who intensely got under the ring with people that were less less skillful than them and sort of, and, and abusing them. And I remember thinking, going, oh my God, the, the love for the sport, the, the camaraderie, the, I used to have 20 white collar boxers lining up this bar with me on Saturdays. And all of a sudden, no, not no more. No, I thought he's not the same guy. He's fucking hurting people. Mm-hmm. And it's like, do you know what? And I went away again. Harry says, "Go away and relax, and come back again after two weeks." And the whole way up to Christmas, um, in two thousand and ten, I, I remember just like, "Right, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. It's going to come back." You know, the, the little burn, the fear. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even. I didn't even have any nerves. And I'm like, "This is Andy Lee. I know Andy Lee. I sparred him many years before, but this is a really talented fighter, and this is a, a, a chance. I guarantee, even the loser." It would have propelled both of us. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you win that um, fight, you're back in the picture. And, and, and uh, because this is, it was great on paper because poor Andy. Andy wasn't as popular as me. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that was the one thing that, that, that I had. Like, everybody, for some reason, were just like... And, and they, we did an interview not too long ago. And uh, they were asking, I says, well, what did you think of John Dolly? And he says, he says, well, to be honest with you, he says, John Dolly wasn't a, wasn't, a, wasn't a fighter. He says, John Dolly was a movement. He says, all of a sudden, he says, there was people in Ireland booking tickets to go over for the weekend to watch him fight. He says, it was unreal. What did you think about that comment that you weren't a fighter, that you were a movement? Did that were you like, well, I was a fighter? Were you okay with that? Did that strike you the wrong way? Yeah, I, I thought, but I, I think I, I was a fighter. But what, mm. people, but it, what I think what he was saying was, it wasn't. He says people just had to see this guy. Mm-hmm. He says when were people in Ireland able to buy tickets to go away for the weekend in New York? He says that never happened before. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden they were doing it to go watch John Dolly. He says it was a movement. People were just if you were Irish, oh, I'm a Dolly fan. Something like that. Yeah. He says it was unreal, and like I was lucky because I had a base. My base was New York. I operated out of that. Andy was under the banner of uh, Emmanuel Stewart, and Emmanuel Stewart trained wherever the highest the people paid him. Mm-hmm. And the Klitschko's unfortunately, Sir Andy was training up in up in Detroit. Then he was training in uh, Ukraine and Russia. And, do you know what I mean? So he was ne- whereas whenever I was here, I was my own star. So mm-hmm. if I had a training camp, I employed. My sparring partners. I was the. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Andy was, was always under the shadow of the other guys, even though he, he, he's a phenomenally talented fighter. You know, and, and the fact that I fought nine times in the garden too, I, I had a home. I had a home base. You know what I mean? So, what you're saying is that we that there could be a potential Andy Lee John Duddy fight in the future. Just saying, just throwing that out there. Could it happen? That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just playing matchmaker. I'm just playing matchmaker. Um, no, I no. My my wanting need to be getting punched in the face is not <laughs> what it was. And, and as I say, I, I said, and I think Tom Hauser helped me write my retirement statement. And, and, and I think that the first words that says, I do not have the dedication or the passion to continue in the training to be a, to, to perform at the highest level in the sport. So I'm going to buy out. Because if I had went into that fight, my heart was not on it. And I know you can get in shape and you can get to this, but I don't know. My heart was always on it. Even 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 though I, I, I no, against Chavez, but leading up to that fight, my goal was I want, I'm, I'm fighting Chavez and I was up for it. I just there was nothing that the tank was empty. I was emotionally dry, and I just would never. And I don't think I would ever, I'll ever have anything fighting wise to make me feel like I used to do. It's just it's not there no more, you know. Well, actually, uh, the first time I ever saw you outside of the ring was a pretty small cameo appearance in a very underrated show, the FX show, The Fighter. No, lights out. Sorry, lights out. Lights out. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, was that your first experience with acting? That cameo. Um, it was over over here. I was an extra on a few different things back home in Ireland. Right. But that, that was a yeah acting wise. That was my first time on a on a TV screen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a memorable episode. I still remember it because you were like one of the boxers who was trying to unionize boxing. It was really really good. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Holt is a Holt is a gentleman. He's a huge boxing fan, and he's just a good uh, human being. And right. since then, like Holt has come to uh, numerous plays that I've done. He actually he came one time to one of a uh, when you're in different you know, when you're in a I was in the T Schreiber acting studio at the end of 
a three or four months, like you do a showcase then of certain plays. Now he's even popped on there with some of them, mm-hmm. and uh, he's been a he's been an avid fan and a friend, and he's helped me out uh, unbelievably and <laughs> uh, anything that he can with, with the acting and stuff like that. There, you know, I'm uh, and, and as I say, unfortunately, hold stuck in his apartment in Manhattan. <laughs> uh, but we talk every few weeks and stuff like that. You know, we check in on, and he actually was talking about lights out. And uh, it's funny because all this lockdown, you get people that are sort of hitting the bottle or people are going off it and getting into the fitness. Well, he, he hasn't had a drop now in over 90 days, maybe longer. Now. He's lost like, I think he says like 15 pound or 20 pound. He says because he was watching Lights Out and he was going, do I want people to remember me? There's Patrick Lights Out Leary or they remember me as uh, 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 Bill Titch out of uh, Mindhunter. And he says, I think, I, I want them to remember me as a fighter. So he's back in fighting shape. <laughs> Man, I would love to see season two of Lights Out because that show was so good. Did you watch it? Yeah, I, I loved it. So I, thought it was, I thought it was great. Um, I mean, but I just think that the timing of it probably wasn't right. You know, you had a, fight, a fighter a few years before. and then yeah. It's funny, like the many, the many kind of fight movies, boxing movies that are, you know... That are that are so uh, so well thought of, and around that time too, you see the UFC started started uh, breaking under the big time, you mm-hmm. know. And well, you liked it or not, boxing all of a sudden was taking a second was taking a second seat, yeah. you know. And it's funny, and, and Holt will tell me, he says like John, you can work on something, you can cover all the bases. He says you have good writing, good scripts, good directors. He says, but if the public don't like it, there's nothing you can do. You That's know, he true. says it's he says it's a fickle business and. I say, I say, well, that's just like fighting. You cover all the bases, but when you get in the ring and you hear that bell, it's up to you and that guy, and there's no, there's no one else that can, you know what I mean, can help you but yourself. But uh, yeah, that that was uh, that that was my first experience, and and uh, to be honest with you, I, I wish I could. I, I'm working on trying to have a maybe a, a, a 95 of that kind of life, so to speak. But until then, I'll keep working on whatever other jobs I can get my hand on. And, Keep practicing away. Right. My first, my first protocol is to try and turn this Irish accent off now and then. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it could work. I mean, I really, I really enjoyed your performance as Ken Buchanan in uh, Hands of Stone. What was that experience like? Working oh, with the that, was, uh, that was that was phenomenal. Like, I mean, you, you couldn't make that stuff up. To be honest with you, uh, 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 and it was again boxing. It's funny when I look back, all the good things that's happened to me in my life had to do with boxing. Mm. I ended up working with De Niro uh, in a gym for about, I'd say, was it four or five weeks? And this was before, this was him preparing for a Grudge Match, a movie that he shot with Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, I remember Grudge Match, Kevin Hart, so it's just a long and, uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, he was just working, he was training in a gym, and I got very friendly with a stuntman, and, 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 and uh, De Niro, we would have talked more and more a little bit as we got to know each other he had a lovely lovely man and uh, he, he's talked about Hands of Stone this movie and if the, 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 the Ray Arcel the trainer and stuff that's right I knew all about that because Charlie Nash was a lightweight and at that time Ken Buchanan and whatnot, they were all like oh, this Duran guy is just running through people you know and, and I knew all his sort of past and history and the Nero kind of took a shine he was like wow you, you, you know a lot about fighting and <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, when I was in school, I said, no, whenever they had the geography book, I, I would I would have had that up, but I was re- uh, reading Ring Magazine uh, in between. <laughs> 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 and, uh, 
But then fast forward uh, four or five months and I get a phone call in September and it was none other than Robert De Niro and, and uh, the guy playing Ken Buchanan pulled out and they were like, look, what are you doing in December? And I was like, Christmas, <laughs> I'm working. And I says, well, do you think you could come to LA for a few weeks and then maybe in December go down to, uh, or the end of November, go down to Panama to, to be Ken Buchanan? And I, and I was like, yes, no problem. Yep. You had to go down to Panama to go play Ken Buchanan. That film was shot in Panama? Wow. Yeah, shot Panama, so it was, it was unbelievable. We, we actually did the press conference right by the Panama Canal. Oh, it was great. unreal. Like, you're able to watch these big, massive ships come in, and then there's highest skyscrapers, and then all of a sudden, when it goes through the, the process of going through the, the, the canal, all of a sudden it drops right down. You could, you could just sort of jump onto the deck. I mean, you want to see how far down it drops when it's going from the Pacific to the Atlantic and vice versa. You know, it was a. Great experience. <laughs> so is it, do you have any other, I mean, obviously everyone's in quarantine right now, but do you have any other roles or any other films or uh, well, projects that you're working on? Actually, at the minute, and we had it on Amazon, but the, 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 the writer-director, Colin Broderick, decided they, they put it out there so everybody could see it. But there's a movie on, you can watch it on YouTube, you call it Emerald City. Emerald City, it, okay. It's, it's, it's about an Irish construction crew in New York, so it is, and uh Myself, my wife, uh, Colin Broderick, the writer-director, him and his wife and a few friends of us, we all got together and uh, it, it, it travelled the whole way from London through Ireland all the way to LA, the different film festivals and stuff like that and nice. some we're very, very proud of. We were all uh, shooting from the hip, so to speak, and learning as we go ahead, but it, it's actually, for an independent movie, I, I, I think it's a, it, it's a very, very good quality. And, and then also, unfortunately, since before this whole pandemic has us all in closed doors and stuff like that there, and, uh, we have another movie called A Bend in the River, so, which, we all, which we shot back at Tyrone, and that was supposed to have its screen uh, debut there uh, in March at the Belfast Film Festival, mm. but due to the whole virus, everything has been postponed and cancelled and stuff like that, so hopefully whenever we get back to whatever the new normal is going to be, uh, Abandon the River is the next uh, movie, and I'm, I'm the star in it. This time I'm the lead, and it's about a, an Irish guy returning home to Northern Ireland from being away for in, in New York for 26 years, mm. and a lot of the things that he ran away from, a lot of the ghosts are still there waiting for him. Sounds a lot like the Daniel Day-Lewis movie, The Fighter. Was that what it was called? Have you seen that? Yeah. 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 Um, but The Fighter... Uh, the guy returned back home. From jail. And, uh, yeah. yeah. But that was all about boxing. This okay. is not a boxing. I'm playing a writer. It's uh, It was it was great. I'm, I'm actually playing the actual writer-director of the movie. It's a version of himself. You know, and uh, I got the big beard all on me and stuff like that. And I'm moping around Northern Ireland because I'm stuck. I'm, <laughs> I'm stuck there for whatever reason, you know. Um, but I'm looking forward to hopefully audiences get the chance to see it. And what's that called again? A Bend in the River, right? Abandon the River. Abandon yeah. the River. And the first film was called? Emerald City. Emerald City and Abandon the River. I'm going to look those up. My listeners out there, please listen to them. All right, John Duddy. I have 10 questions here that every single champion that I've had on this show has answered. Everyone from Corey Spinks to, uh, I don't know, John David Jackson. They've all answered it. All right. Wow. You yeah. That's nice. That's going to be all. All right. You ready? Okay. All right. Where is the most memorable place you fought? Hall, Belfast. What and why that place? What was that? Why that place? 
Closed the King's Hall in Belfast. There's our Madison Square Garden. Oh, okay. When I grew up as a kid, that's where Brian McGuigan fought. Mm. And through the uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s, it used to be matches just like Madison Square Garden, two, three cards a week. Mm. And uh, usually, if you're headlining a show in Madison Square Garden, whatever political turmoil or troubles that are happening on the streets, they go quiet for the night. And I was lucky to achieve that. <laughs> All right. Uh, you never won a world title, but where's the most memorable? You have won the IBA title, so have you? Ever, where's the most memorable place you've ever bought? You've ever brought your championship belts? Um, well, I'm I'm, uh, I'm lucky. Um, one of them is in uh, the Ring BC Boxing Club in Derry, okay, the gym where I learned my college from my father and Charlie Nash. And the other, the, the IBA belt is actually in uh, 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 Doherty's Dor uh, Castle in Derry City on the, on the walls in the museum. So you don't even have them. them. They're just like, they're, they're, they're in people's gyms. That's pretty nice. Yeah, one's in the gym and one's in the, the museum. Okay. So I'm not dead yet, but they help me up as a relic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So what's the best advice you've ever received from a trainer in the corner? best advice I ever received from a trainer was relax, breathe, and enjoy yourself. <laughs> and who said that? My father. Oh, that's like, when did, what fight did he say that? Do you remember? He said it, he said it to me through my whole amateur career. Exactly. And he says it to me before every pro fight they ever got to see him before. He says, son, you've been doing this your whole life. Just breathe, relax, and enjoy it. Nice. And uh, by God, I did. <laughs> Okay, question four. What fighter would you have liked to have fought, either present or in the past, in history? Can be, could be anyone. Um, the guy that invented insurance. I'm to fight him because he's a complete scammer. <laughs> the guy who invented insurance. Okay. <laughs> oh, man, not Marvin Hagler, not Tommy Hearns. You want to fight the guy? Not, I, honestly, even in my hypothetical mind, I'm yeah. not too fond to get my ass kicked. <laughs> Can I, okay, can I can I throw out one fighter who I think would be a compelling fight, and I think you guys would really have a good war? Can I throw out one fighter? Uh, okay, Tony Simpson. Tony Simpson, okay. Yeah, middleweight. You remember him? I'm sorry. Uh, he fought Hagler. Maybe I'm getting the name wrong. Hold on. Uh, let me look it up here. Are you having Alan Minter? No. Although, what about Alan Minter? Well, he was English, yeah, I'd love to beat up anybody. English, yeah, no problem. <laughs> oh, he was a nice guy. He, he was a good guy, but my God, Alan, Marvin Hagler destroyed him. In three rounds. That was, that was a hard fight to watch. Poor Alan Minter, man. Wow. <laughs> you know, Tony Simpson, he fought Marvin Hagler. He went seven rounds, and he's English. So, you should look him up. Yeah, all right. I will look, I will look him up. <laughs> all right, next one. Uh... What is your favorite pair of trunks that you've ever worn in a fight? My favorite pair of shorts? Yeah, shorts, trunks, whatever. Yeah, the third, my, my favorite was my amateur, my amateur trunks. They were uh, black with gold stripe. What made them? ABC colors. Okay. What made them so special? Because that's where I learned how to be a boxer. Nice, nice. That's what made me go out. Okay, question six. Have you ever had to go to the bathroom during the middle of a fight? I've had to go to the bathroom just after I get my gloves put on. Uh, uh, that, yeah, that usually uh, that usually happens all the time. But when the adrenaline and the nerves kick on, um, <laughs> for some reason you can forget about it. And then have you ever not been able to forget about it? Where you're like, I gotta go now. 
No, I've always been able to hold it off. Oh. So I've been probably not not to my benefit, but I, I know I've heard stories. I've yeah. heard stories about Roberto Duran and some of his fights where he just went away anyway. He just went ahead. <laughs> you want to hear a funny story? Uh, John David Jackson, he once punched a guy who shit his pants. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's tough. Yeah. Well, right. you know, that just goes down to your diet because... Yeah. That guy was eating too much before he got into the ring. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question seven. All right, John Duddy, you're now the commissioner, you're now the president, you're now the prime minister of boxing. What is one thing that you would change about boxing? Um, I'd bring back the 15 rounds. A lot of people say that. Why do, why do you want to wipe 15 rounds? Because they've turned it... They've turned, they've turned the, the, the marathon and the half marathon. Mm. So they help with it. That's the word championship. You know, looking at them old fights. Yeah. Come on, and them last from from twi- from uh, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the uh, that's the word champion rounds. And and you know another thing too, it would also teach fighters to stop cutting corners more and stop trying to dehydrate. And and the weigh-in should probably happen on the day of the weight as well, the day of the fight as well again, because. Mm-hmm. I mean, so so much drying out and sweating out and thinking you can rehabilitate yourself within the 24 hours of the bout coming up. Mm-hmm. I think that, the, like, you're hearing about, a, why is there more deaths now than there was back in the old days when they had lighter gloves? Because <laughs> they're weighing in the day after, before the fight or something like that, yeah, right? Yeah, they're weighing, they're weighing in the day before the fight, so they kill themselves mm-hmm. a little extra more to, to get down the weight that they're not naturally suited at. And then they, they, they believe that their body's going to absorb all this goodness and hydrates. And then they go into a fight and all of a sudden guys are getting hurt. Unfortunately, some guys are dying. Yeah. It's bad for the sport. I reckon if it was changed back the, the 15 rounds and the weigh-in on the same day would certainly cut out the, uh, uh, the, the little bit of riffraff. There's always going to be pushing to and fro about making weight and stuff like that. But having a full day to try and rehydrate and stuff like that, I think it's become... Uh, not beneficial to the fighters. I think that gives them a false sense of illusion that they can actually go a little lower and they can't. They leave themselves in the gym and, and unfortunately, that's that's where, the, that's where the damage comes in and that's what hurts the sport for all of us uh, overall. Right, okay. Um, question eight. What's the most ridiculous thing you've ever bought with your boxing uh, purses or earnings? Are you just like, why am I buying this? I don't need this. Um... Sorry, what do you mean? So, have you ever bought something out of just because you wanted it? Um, or, like, I had, for instance, I had a Corey Spinks on, and he said he bought a $700 paintball gun. Uh, have you ever bought something like that? Never. Never? You've saved your money? You've done good? No, I wouldn't say I, mm-hmm. I, I save my money. I use my money well, but um, nice. I, I would rather go out and work a day's construction than fight any clown, you know? Mm-hmm. Um I, I don't, uh, never had a f- like whenever, honestly, whenever I was boxing pro, man, and it's funny, I was doing it for the money, but I always thought the money would come. I, I, I was never worried about the check that came mm-hmm. to me after the fight. It wasn't the later on in my, in my, in my career I started realizing this ain't worth it, right. you know? Right, okay. Uh, question nine. Who is the best trash talker you ever fought with? The best what? Trash talker. Who talked the most, who talked the most during a fight, tried to get into your head? Um, Jesus. Uh, well, there was, that, that was one good thing about when I was fighting people. They never had much time for, for trash talking. 
I was kind of, if you had enough time to breathe, then I would do my job. Nobody ever, like, when you're in a clinch, they never whisper in your ear, I'm going to fuck you up. Like, none of that? No, no, no. You know, it's funny, that doesn't, that doesn't happen as often as people think. But I remember before one fight, uh, and this was whenever the Jermaine Taylor was on, I fought a guy from Canada. His name escapes me now. It was, it was in the garden. Um, it was under Mikel Cotto. And I boxed him. I think I broke his nose in the sixth or seventh round, and he couldn't come out to the, to the next round. Whenever we were at the press conference, he turned around and looked at me, you know, for the stare-off, and he says, kid, I'm going to take you to school. And I said to him, I'm looking forward to the lesson. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, question 10, last question. Sex before a fight. Uh, big deal, little deal, no deal. What do you think about that? I, 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 I don't know. If you were thinking about having sex before a fight, plan, you know what? Good, good lucky. Um, <laughs> it was never uh, in... In my in my mind or, or, or no thought process, I suppose it's like everybody would you know, ask me, I say, "Oh, so would you have a drink coming up to a fight?" And it's like, no. <laughs> and they're like, "Well, why not?" I said, "Because you're training, you're you're exercising, all your energy is focused on doing this one thing." Some would why say sex is a form of exercise, though. Some would say sex is a form of exercise. Yeah, well, whatever way you want to build it up in your head, you know, <laughs> I know the illusion is, is that they reckon you could no legs. I know that sometimes when I went to Gleason's on a Saturday morning and was doing sparring, Harry would pull me to the side and say, were you getting busy last night? And it's like, no. And it's like, John. I'm like, uh. And he says, I can tell. He says, I know straight away. He knew. Um, but at the end of the day, the body gets what the body wants. You know? I never made a, I never made a, a, a law of like, oh, I'm never having sex. You know? I just don't think I was ever in the, the, the proper mindset for it. And I'm sure my wife... <laughs> was kind of happy as well, because I, I was a pretty boring guy, leading up the fights, I was always stuck in my own head, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so, thank you for being on the podcast, but before we go, I just want to say one thing, uh, when I was in college, I was in, you know the play, The Last Playboy of the Western World? Yes. Okay, I was in that, I was in a production of that, and, oh, cool. yeah, thanks, I played Old Mahan, and, uh, my, my, my acting coach, my dialect coach, he said I get, did the best Irish accent of anyone in the play. I am convinced that I can do a great Irish accent. Can I get your opinion on this? I would love to give you my opinion, but you got to be careful now. Yeah. I mean, if you ask a question, you're going to get an answer. Uh, you know what? I, I will respect this 100%. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. How are you doing over there, John? I'm doing all right over here. I'm over in Brooklyn. Pandemic doing over the doing okay over there? That's <laughs> uh, not too bad. That's uh, pretty good. Uh, I think, it's, I, I, I think that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. My wife's listening to you as well, and she's laughing. Well, what does she think? What does your wife think? What do you think? I think it's brilliant. I think. Oh, oh, oh! Thank you, man. I work at a, I work at a grocery store, and there are some like Irish people who are like I'll do the Irish accent for, it, and they'll be like, yeah. they'll 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 ask more probing questions, and then they'll figure yeah. out. Oh, I'm from I'm not from there. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I, uh, I was in Pennsylvania for my brother-in-law's wedding. Okay. And uh, for some reason, there's a pile of us over, oh, there's a pile of family over from Derry. And this one kid, this was in Penn State, and I don't know why he singled me out, but out of all the group, he comes up to me and tells me, yeah, man, man, it's good, but uh, no, knock it off, knock it off. <laughs> my, my, grand, my grandparents are Irish, you're not Irish. Oh, like, no. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I, I'm a very plastic guy. I said, no problem, buddy. Yeah, just, you know. Just, just 
just cool with the Irish accent. It's not funny. It's yeah, kind just, of offensive. Just, just, just leave me alone. Yeah. And then he comes up a second time. No. And in front of my whole family, and I says, kid, what are you doing? Look, man, my grand... I says, look, I don't care where your parent or your grandparents were from. I says, but I'm here with family and friends. And I pointed over to the far side of the room. There was a stack of all our kids. I says, is that all your friends? And he's like, yeah. I says, well, you better go and tell them and they better get out of here because if you come back to me one more time, I'm not only going to hurt you, I'm going to hurt every single one of them as well. Wow. Leave me alone. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it's like, I've never gone up to an American and says, hey, man, cut out the accent. You're not American. Like, like, what the fuck? <laughs> you should. You should. You should do that. <laughs> I, would, I would only do it if, I was ever, if I'm ever able to conquer the American accent. <laughs> Gotta learn how to speak with an American tone that's not from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> that's not bad. That's not bad. It's pretty, it's like my Irish accent, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. I always think we sound like uh, George Bush when we try to put on an American accent. <laughs> oh, you tried to copy George Bush? And, oh, okay. Well. No, I'm not trying to copy him. I'm trying to do a, a, a normal American accent. Normal American accent. It always comes out from the south. It oh. always comes out like from, hey, hey. Texas, yeah. George W. Bush. How's it going, Bush? <laughs> That's so bad. We're going, we're That's going so bad. We're going to get him. Going yeah. Get him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was great, man. Uh, really quick before I <laughs> before I leave, I got to be honest. Every Irish person in New York, and I swear to God, every Irish person in New York either knows you, like has a story about like, yeah, I saw him at like a theater thing, or yeah, I know his wife, or something. Yeah. What is, what, uh, you just get around, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very, very uh, fortunate and very, very uh, lucky that they, they have that. I remember being asked before, like I was I was back in Dublin and there was someone came up to me or actually one time my wife said, she says, look, if you don't look now, but if you look to the right, there's people taking photographs with <laughs> their phones. And this has only been happening, this is like in the last few years, like I haven't fought in 10 years and yeah. people's minds are, sh are short, I get it, but whether it's in New York, Dublin, Belfast, Derry, or even London. I mean, I've gone to places and all this. Like, I work in a moving company. I love furniture up and down. And if it's happened, I, even the guys in my work laugh at me. They're like, here we go again. Somebody always starts the conversation. Oh, hey, guys. Oh, wow, man. You look like that Irish guy, the fighter. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, John Dolly. I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, nice to meet you. And they're like, what? I says, I'm John. I've had to pull my ID out and everything. You know what's well, funny is that in my mind, you just retired last year. Like, I'm just like, oh, yeah, he retired, but he'll be back. Yeah, it's funny. People, even at home, they ask me, oh, so you give up the fighting? And it's like, Jesus, that's 10 years ago. But it's gone fast. It's gone very fast. Yeah. I've been retired longer than, than I was actually active. You ever, oh, man. That's crazy to think about. That's really crazy to think about. All right. Funny. Yeah. All right, champ, man. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. This was a uh, year in the making, and I'm so glad we were able to do it. Cheers, Gene. Thank yeah. you so much. Sorry it took so long. No, nah, man, I don't it's know, fine. Hopefully, uh, I don't know. I, I did an interview there a few weeks ago, and I was totally oblivious to what was happening in the current climate. <laughs> and, and even at that, when I wrote the guys, he says, look, guys, I'm so sorry. I never knew the extent of what the trouble, the, what's been happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, I come across as ignorant, and they were like, no, John, you don't. This is, it's, it's, it's great. And I says, well, at least hopefully that brings a smile to some people in these dark times. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully that's what it'll do because I mean we're we're definitely in a, a, a unique a unique stage in life here, and hopefully a friend actually said it. He used the words exciting, 
Yeah. And I kind of, I kind of disagree with him, but but he was right when he came back. I and mean, when he says, "Well, he says, John, when you look at the history, whenever there's been revolt and, and violence and and troubles like this and protests, there's always good that comes out of it at the end at some stage." And you know what? If, if that's not positivity, I, I don't know what is. And hopefully, that there is some light at the end of this uh, at, at the end of this dark tunnel, and, and hopefully we'll be better for it. You know, you just say dark tunnel as opposed to all those well lit tunnels. Now I'm just fucking with you, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, champ, man. You, I agree with everything you just said. I, I really do believe that there will be some good that comes out of all this. Um, unfortunately, man, I gotta go to work right now because podcasting ain't paying the bills. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Are you still in Brooklyn? Yeah, I'm in Queens. I'm in, uh, I'm in Ridgewood. Oh, Ridgewood. Good. Yeah. Mom, we're in Middle Village. We're not that far away. Oh shit. Yeah. Hey, when this is all and over. Unfortunately, my wife, my wife worked in Woodhaven Boulevard, the Woodhaven House. Okay. And and they closed the day before St. Patrick's Day. Unfortunately, for good. Just the whole the whole shutdown knocked everything out of the. So it's not opening again. But this is our Nicola Woods Juniper Valley, is the park that I would train. I would run around and stuff like that. Also, so stay in touch and maybe if you'd like to, we'll hang out sometime or have another chat or, <laughs> or as I say, just just a talky. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> I hear, or as the Brits say, a chinwag, as I've been told. A chinwag. Yes. A chinwag. <laughs> a chinwag. Yeah. All right. All right, champ. This was a great episode, man. You have a good rest of your day. Take care. God bless. Have a good one. Take it easy, man. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was John Duddy on the podcast. He was a great guest. And that was another episode of the Robodo Podcast. Please follow us on Instagram at Robodo Podcast. Please follow us on Facebook at Robodo Podcast. Please listen to us on Anchor at Robodo Podcast. Please listen to us on Spotify at Robodo Podcast. And please listen to us on SoundCloud at Robodo Podcast. All right, everyone. My name's Gene Morgan. You guys have a good rest of your day. I'm taking off. Have a good one. Bye.